0: For 12 consecutive years now, we have taken this weekend to refocus the lens of our church on the epicenter of why we exist and the center of our passions and our affections. We gather here again today uh, for this 13th All About Him message. And before I start, I just want to say that I am uh, profoundly thankful for the privilege of spending these years with you, uh, trying our very best to make much of uh, Christ and to live that out in the day-to-day of life, uh, beyond the celebration, but to make it practical in the day-to-day of living, and uh, to glorify Him in the way that we conduct ourselves and uh, love one another in the church and seek to expand the gospel to the community and to the world. I'm very thankful for the chance to be here with you and for this weekend again uh, to to be here. I was driving in today and just happiness in my heart because I knew it was an awesome service and this is a wonderful passage that I get to speak to you from today and just happy. Um, happy to wear a comfortable g- g- garment today too. If some of you are wondering, uh, this is not a cult. It is... Uh, uh, this is part of my message, and I think as we go along, you'll increasingly see why I might be wearing it uh, today. It's, an, it's, it's actually like a, it's a, an Indian tuxedo uh, given to me by my friend Abraham Thomas. So we come now to the book of Revelation, and the title of the book gives us an indication of what it's about. The full title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. We typically shorten it to Revelation. And it's the book at the end of the Bible, which also tells us something about what its contents have and hold. It is a book about last things or final things. It is a book that tells us about the future. You know, there are 142 million volumes, 142 million books in the Library of Congress, and not one of them can tell you what's going to happen this afternoon. We have in our hands here a book that tells us, what happens in the future? This is the only book in the entire world that speaks with confidence. What is going to happen in the future? And it tells this story in a very spectacular and visual way. Uh, one that is difficult to understand at times because we want to read it like it's a uh, like it's a, a, a chronology. When the writer. John wrote it more like an artist, and so there are all kinds of colors and symbols and pictures that we in our mind want to see literally the way that he is saying it, but actually, the color and the picture and the symbol oftentimes is speaking of a deeper spiritual truth, so you have to read revelation uh, kind of like when you go to an art studio and I was recently in Chicago and I went to one of the art studios there and if you uh, have seen modern art, then you know that it is sometimes a tad bizarre. And we're walking around looking at all these, you know, these art things, and you're kind of, you know, you're sort of doing this number. Hmm. Like I remember one; there was like it was mounted on the wall, and there was around a hundred paper plates with plastic forks attached to them. And you stand in front of that, and you're like, "Looks like my kitchen." you know, I don't know why this is art. Uh, But all the time you're saying, I wonder what the author meant by that. I mean, he's trying to say or she's trying to say something. What is it? And similarly, when you read through Revelation, you have to kind of read it like you're at an art studio because the colors and the symbols are speaking of something behind the art and the symbol that the author, John, through the Holy Spirit, was trying to communicate. So here we come to Revelation 19. And there is a, I, wanna, I want to put a frame around this painting that he gives us here. And the frame is the human story. The frame is our story. The frame is your story. Here's how our story goes. God created us. And he made us, Adam and Eve, first two human beings. He made us for two primary relationships. The first one was a relationship with himself. He put inside of us a spirit, a soul, so that we can relate to a spiritual God. And he also put in us a social side, so that we can relate to one another. And most of us would say the pinnacle human experiences are when we have a right relationship with God, and we have right relationships with one another in our family or in our, in our home, in our community, that this is really living. This is when everything feels The way that it's supposed to be. And indeed, this was the case only with perfection. God made those us and those relationships perfect. And uh, we were in a garden, a beautiful garden. So life is good. For human beings, life is really, really good. Well, this perfect existence was shattered when Adam and Eve sinned against God. And those both of those relationships that we were made for were also shattered. No longer a relationship with God because of our sin. No longer healthy, vibrant relationships with one another. Now there is brokenness, and now there is pain, and now there is hurt. All of this because of sin. And the villain in this whole thing, uh, beyond our responsibility, was the serpent, or Satan, who was the tempter in the garden. And when God pronounced his judgment down upon uh, Adam and Eve, he included a judgment upon Satan. And one little phrase in that judgment is very curious. Here's what he said in Genesis 3. And I will put enmity between... He's speaking now to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He... Will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. Who's he? And how's he gonna crush Satan's head? Like, what's that all about? You can almost imagine uh, Adam hearing this judgment and kind of being like, God, can I just ask a question? Because, like, who's the he that's coming from Eve? And how is he possibly going to do this to Satan? Like, I'm totally confused. I don't know what you're talking about. And nobody knew. And for centuries, there was scratching of heads and pondering how possibly could there be an offspring of Eve that God would use to bring about judgment upon Satan. And yet this is exactly what God says to Satan. Basically this, Satan, someday... You're going to get it. You are going to get it. How? We don't know. We don't know. But as you read through uh, the story, God begins to set in motion a series of circumstances and, and very unique circumstances, uh, but not, exa- not what we would expect if you're going to do the whole crushing of Satan thing, like he makes a promise to this shepherd named Abraham and his descendants. Okay, great. Great. He, uh, he, brings, he brings a little bitty nation out of Egypt in a dramatic way for sure, but how is this like getting at Satan? I don't know. I don't get it. He makes promises to this little nation of people and says, Someday there's going to be a, a son of David who will sit on an eternal throne. Talk of some Messiah, mystery, myth, legend. What's going on here? Nobody knew. Nobody understood. But what we did know is that by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, uh, it's not looking at all like things are going well. I mean, this nation that he's made these promises to have rebelled against him. They've been scattered amongst the Assyrian nations and conquered by Babylon. The temple that was the place of worship Solomon built in all its glory now is in ruins. And it just doesn't look good, does it? It just doesn't seem like the whole thing in Genesis 3 is going to be accomplished. Well, then you get to the New Testament. And there is this dramatic, dramatic and unexpected development. In 4 BC, approximately, in a little wide spot of the road, there was a virgin that gave birth to a son. And God said that son is going to be the savior of the world. And the mom didn't get or understand what that was about. And nobody else really understood what that pronouncement was all about. And this boy grew up. And those that were around him saw him doing amazing things. Things that nobody else had ever done before. Healing people. Saying things that were so profound and and, uh, life-changing. And they witnessed these kinds of miracles. But they had no idea who he was. They didn't realize what was going on. They hoped... They hoped that he would be a political leader. They hoped that he would be this Messiah who would lead Israel against Rome and bring back Israel's glory. But as is often the case, they were thinking too small. You know, oftentimes, I've regularly, okay, like always, when it comes to our thinking, we think too small. He didn't come to conquer the Romans. He came to conquer Satan's sin and death. He had cosmic intentions in coming. And ironically, he was crucified on a Roman cross. Died. Buried. Over 500 witnesses saw him resurrected from the dead. Forty days later, ascended to heaven and is now at the right hand of God himself, this Jesus. Now that's the history of it. Here's the theology. The Bible says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that when Jesus died... He was actually doing the thing that back in Genesis 3, God promised would happen. That when he died, he wasn't just dying like any other person died in the first century. That when he died, God himself placed upon Jesus the moral and spiritual guilt of the sins of the world. So that when Jesus died, he was actually making a ransom payment for all of the guilt that you and I have incurred against a holy God so that now God the Father has a moral and spiritual basis by which he can forgive the descendants of Adam and Eve their sins and to make right that relationship with God and to restore what sin destroyed. That's the theology of it. But nobody knew. I mean, nobody realized that. I mean, the Romans had no idea what they were doing, and the Jews had no idea truly what they were doing. And you can wonder if Satan realized what the Father and the Son were up to when Jesus died on the cross. But God the Father and God the Son knew exactly what they were doing. They were destroying sin and death, and they were in the process of crushing Satan's head. Jesus went to heaven. commissioned 12 of his disciples and said, hey, I want you to take this message to as many people as you possibly can. Tell them what I have done. Tell them that if they will repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in me, that they will be forgiven of their sins and I will give to them eternal life. Tell them. And so these 12 guys told people, and those people told people, and those people told people. And now for centuries, millions of people have come to place their faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, Bethel Church is here today because of that. We are just a part of that spreading of that message that Jesus gave to the disciples before he was ascended to heaven. We are here today because of it. Now here is the curious thing. If you look around... It doesn't look like God's winning, does it? I mean, here we are today, 2009. The vast majority of people in the world do not believe Jesus' message. And those who claim they do oftentimes don't live like it. We live in a world where sin is rampant. I mean, if you want to sin, there is no trouble sinning in this world. Even in, you know, here we are in, in the United States, known as the Christian nation of the world and yet statistics say this is the fifth largest mission field in the world millions of people don't believe jesus message don't live like it at all so we live in a day in 2009 where all the things that it would seem that god the father and god the son putting in motion and destroying satan and all the rest that you would see more sort of uh evidence of that but it seems to me that satan's quite comfortable here He's got his run of the place, doesn't he? Lots of people following him, lots of people following his lies. I think he's getting along just fine. And then you come to the book of Revelation, the book of last things, and you begin to read about what's going to happen in the future. And if you read uh, chapters 1 through 18, it is largely depressing. Because essentially the story of chapters 1 through 18 is that things go from bad to worse, to horrific, and mankind increasingly in rebellion against God, and the surrogates of Satan increasingly exerting uh, control and influence in the world, and it just seems like the whole thing's going to pot. Nobody cares about Christ. Nobody cares about God. The world bent on sin and rebellion against God, and so we could end chapter 18 and say, okay, God, where are you in this? I mean, where, where, where's Jesus in this? Where's the whole crushing Satan's head in this? Because it certainly doesn't look like you're about what you said you were going to do. And then, you read chapter 19, verse 11, and something very, very dramatic happens. The Apostle John sees something. He sees something he sees heaven open now what's that like i don't know i don't know there's some times when i'm you know driving down the road and there's a storm and the clouds get all sort of pretty and the sun comes through and i kind of have i don't know if you're like me but i sort of i think of like jesus return in those kind of moments like you know it just i don't know if that's what it's going to be like I don't know what it's, that's what it looks like. But somehow, heaven opened. And this is what the Apostle John saw. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. That's a happy moment, isn't it? Happy moment. And I don't know if you're cheering or not, but if in your heart you're going, then you're getting it. Because this moment represents the fulfillment of all of these promises that God has made and all of the things that God has set in motion for all of these centuries and millennia of waiting for this fulfillment to happen suddenly in the moment when we need it the most, in the moment when things look the worst. Heaven opens. And into this creation steps. Jesus Christ. And in my mind, I... I see, I see him just like, you know, stepping in and just thundering, I'm back, you know. (laughs) Remember me. It's not in the Bible. That's just me. Okay, so don't, I'm not adding to scripture or anything like that, but. What a dramatic appearance. I mean, you would talk about knowing how to make a a dramatic appearance. This is a dramatic appearance, don't you think? Suddenly, here he is. So let's look at the scene. And remember that we're reading this like artists. And he's writing it as an artist. So the colors and the images are saying something that is true about what's happening. And the person who is on the horse. So the first thing that you notice if you read this is the uh, the prevailing color white. We have a white horse. We have uh, the armies clothed in white linen, and they're riding white horses. Lots of white here in this picture. Why? Well, here's why. With with only two exceptions, every time in the New Testament that this color is used, it is referring to either. The, the glory or the color of heaven or victory the glory and color of heaven or victory that's what white represents it's kind of like uh in this story i think it's a little bit like watching classic westerns where there's lots of horse riding and lots of shooting and lots of chaos and so the directors help us know who is who by putting white hats on the good guys and black hats on the bad guys, right? So that as you're watching it, you're like, okay, I know who's the, whose side that they're on. Similarly, we have here, what's coming out of heaven, these armies and the rider, it is brilliant. It is, it is white. And, and it says that they are riding on horses. Now let's talk about that for a moment. A horse in the ancient culture, was, the, was an animal of war. Okay? This is an animal of war. Remember, Jesus came the first time riding on a donkey, and he was, by doing this, symbolizing peace, offering himself to Israel there at Jerusalem. But here now, he's not riding a donkey. There are no donkeys to be seen in this picture, except a few of us who might be in the army riding after him. Uh Everyone's riding horses. A horse was a symbol of going to war. And it's a white horse that the rider is on. And it's a white horse that the armies of heaven are on. And this goes back to the tradition in Rome where when the Romans won a great victory, Caesar would ride into or the general would ride into Rome on a white horse. What did it mean? When you saw the general or the, or the Caesar riding in after battle on a white horse, it meant that he had won. He had won. Victorious, conqueror. And the rider here is on a white horse, and the armies behind him are wearing white linen, and they are riding white horses. This is an army that is going to war. Now, are you with me here? Do you see some kind of a potential incongruity with an army going to war already wearing the color of victory? Now I want to tell you about my hat. I have a hat here, and I'm not going to tell you how I got it. But this is a hat that uh, is is, uh, making the very same point This is a hat that um, it's like official, I think, NFL gear here. And on the side, it says uh, February 4th, 2007, Super Bowl. Okay, so if you remember that date, what was going on on that date. And on the front of the hat, it says Super Bowl champions. And then beneath it is the Chicago Bears insignia. Some of you are going, now, I haven't been listening very well, but I think that something's not right with that hat. (laughs) Honey, didn't the Colts win the Super Bowl? Yeah, that's right. The Bears did not win the Super Bowl. This is a hat. This is what they do before the games. They pre-print champion gear (laughs) for both teams so that as soon as the game is done, whoever wins the... Game quickly can put you see him doing that afterwards and the and the trophy ceremony it says the name of the team and that they are the champions and so this is one of the hats that was made for uh, that particular Super Bowl didn't work out so well uh, for this hat and uh, so I wonder let's just say that uh, Super Bowl February fourth two thousand and seven at that Super Bowl. Bears versus the Colts. Let's just say that uh, the Bears came out of the tunnel before the game, already wearing the hats. Okay, out they come, Super Bowl champs. What would what would the like people in the crowd be thinking? You know, they'd be going, "They shouldn't be wearing that yet, right?" And you got to know that the Colts fans would be going, "No way, ain't no way, ain't gonna happen." And the Colts bear, the, the, the Colts players would have been going, oh, that makes me mad for them to do that. Why? Because you, you have to normally wait until the game is done before you declare who is the victor, right? You don't get to wear hats like this until the game is done. But here we have in this future story, the armies of heaven... Who? We're not sure exactly who they are. Certainly the angels. Possibly us. Possibly. There's a debate about that. Might be us. Um, I sort of hope it's us because I'd like to be a part of that. How about you? Okay. Love to be a part of that. Out come the armies of heaven. Already wearing the declaration of victory. And the battle has not even happened yet. Hmm. What's, about, what's going on with that? That's the picture here. The army is in white declaring before they even start, We are the champions. We are the victors. And of course, it has nothing to do with us. We're all going like, because we're with him, right? (laughs) We are so with him. Now, what about this rider, who really is the center character, the center figure in the story? Let's talk about him. Verse 11 Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. You know, nowhere in the passage does it say that this is Jesus Christ. But, who else can it be? And the clear indication is that it is him. He is coming back. The last time we saw him, he was... He was uh, uh, Ascending to heaven, and the and the, and the angels appeared to the disciples and said, "You know what? He's coming back just the way that he came in the first place." Okay, that's been like two thousand years, roughly. Now we ain't seen him. He's not been around, but here he is suddenly, just like he promised. In fact, that's the first thing that we find about this. In this is his character. He is called faithful and true. This speaks to his reliability. He promised that he would come back. And now he is here. And the declaration is, you know what? He is good to his word. He is good to his word. He is faithful. And he is true in all that he says. We secondly see his glory in verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Eyes like fire. This is pictured also in chapter 1. This speaks to the fact that he sees everything. He knows everything. Nothing escapes his eyes. He is crowned with many crowns. The ESV says diadem. On his head are many diadem. Diadem is crown. Now what's this talking about? And here's where, especially if you're a young person, uh, realize that this is a symbolic picture. When Jesus comes back, he's not going to have crown on top of crown, on top of crown this big, you know, uh, uh, cat in a hat sort of thing going on on his head. Not going to happen. This is symbolic. To have a crown is to have authority. And so to have many crowns is to have much authority. And so we may sing the song, crown him with many crowns. What are we saying that all authority is his. This one that is coming now, prepared for battle, is coming in absolute authority. Nobody stands against him. He has an unknowable name, which is this is an interesting description in the in the ancient culture only the gods had names that nobody knew, and the, 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 uh, the understanding was that if you told somebody your name, they exerted a little bit of control or power over you because they knew your name to not have a name meant that nobody could touch you you were it 's the mystery of this person. Maybe you might uh, picture it this way: many of our superheroes wear masks right, and they hide their identity, and it adds to the mystery of you know who. Who, who is that masked man, they say. And we don't know. We don't know. The writer has a name, but only he knows it. That's his glory. Moves to his power. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. You know, at first glance, you read that, you think, of course, his robe is dipped in blood. This is picturing the fact that he shed his blood on the cross for our sins, which is totally true. Or you might look at Revelation uh, 5, which has a picture of a lamb looking like it has been slain. And you could look at that and say, well, that's what this is indicating. Nope, 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 nope. That's not what it's talking about. This is a reference to Isaiah 63. And in Isaiah 63, God is pictured as a warrior. A warrior whose garments are splattered, and this is not pretty on a Sunday morning, but this is the Bible. His garments are splattered with the blood of his enemy. You see a warrior who's walking around, and he has he has the blood of his enemy on him. This is a bad dude, right? This is a guy who has conquered. It's kind of like in World War II. I I I enjoy World War II amateur, World War II buff, especially the air dogfight kind of stuff. I really enjoy reading about that. And one of the things that they did in World War II, the pilots in World War II, is when they shot down an enemy, they would record the kill on their plane by drawing a little picture, a little insignia of that plane. And if you got five of those... If you killed five enemies, you got five insignias on your plane, you were considered an ace. And that was a big deal to be, you know, a World War II ace. A guy named Pappy Boyington, maybe you've heard of him, Baba Black Sheep, old show, good show, old show. Young people going, he's not cool. I know. It's an old show. Uh, But, and I'm not cool, and I'm okay with that. Uh, (laughs) But it was a TV show about this pilot. Uh... Pappy Boyington shot down 28 enemy, 28. Five is an ace, 28. Now let me just ask you, if you are a Japanese pilot out on patrol, just flying around, and you come across a guy who has 28 pictures drawn on the side of his plane, what do you think? You think, I'm getting out of here, right? Because look at him. Look at, look at who he has destroyed. This is one bad dude. His robe is dipped in blood. This is one bad dude. This is a warrior who has conquered his enemies. None have been able to withstand him. He is victorious, the victor, conqueror. He is the Word of God. This is not the John 1 Word of God, revelation of God. It's used here to mean that His Word is the final Word. What He says is the God Word. His purpose, verse 15, from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. We have in this passage three symbols that speak to his character. We have a rod of iron, we have a wine press, and we have a sword. Now a rod of iron, iron was the strongest metal of the day. Nothing could break iron. To have a rod of iron means that you rule in a way that nobody can stand against you. He is it says, he is treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This is a very vivid picture. What is this one coming to do? In the, in, the, in the first century, they would make wine by putting a whole bunch of grapes in a vat with a little hole in the bottom, and the winemaker would stand on top of it and would just stomp down those grapes. And out would come the juice of the grape and make the wine. And the picture here is this. What is this one coming to do? Why is he coming? He is coming and he is going to exert the wrath of the fury of God Almighty and he is going to stop his enemies. And then you have this picture of the sword. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, which I think is vivid, but it's awkward. And I remember as a younger man, sort of in my mind, visualizing Jesus with, you know, literally a sword coming out of his mouth, you know, and kind of coming down. and Forgetting that this is symbolic. It is indeed symbolic. This is referring to the infinite power of his word. This is the only weapon that is mentioned in this entire passage. What is the weapon? It is the power of His Word. When you are God, you speak and things happen. You say it and it it is done because you are infinitely powerful and your Word is your will and it exerts itself powerfully. I mean... God created the world. He created the galaxies by saying it. And suddenly, here are all the galaxies of the world. That is the power. When you are God, you don't need a horse. When you are God, you don't need a sword. You speak. So, you like Braveheart and Lord of the Ring fans who are looking at this passage going, I love it because Jesus comes down and wow. wow you know, doing all this. No. Speaks. He makes war by speaking. How hard is it to win a battle when you are God and you speak and things happen? The picture here is so powerful. Imagine the power of that. I just got, I mean, in my mind, I just got thinking about the picture. Heaven opens and out comes Jesus in Shekinah glory. And I don't think he's really actually riding a horse, but he is, he is, he is coming in, in, in glory. And here comes, here comes the armies behind him, brilliant in color. Imagine being one of those earthly enemies of God on there gathered. This is Armageddon, by the way. This is Armageddon. They're gathered They are gathered at Armageddon. This is the battle that we're talking about. And you see this entourage, this just coming your way. Like, how do you fight against God? I think I'll shoot him. Our weapons, what? And here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus. And he goes, and you're done. And there's all the armies of the West. Bye bye, armies of the East. Dead. He speaks it. It happens. And here is the ultimate, verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. This is the glorious title. If you know anything about this passage, this is probably what you know. On his robe, some kind of garment, there is King of Kings. And on his thigh, literally, or on the clothing of his thigh, Lord of Lords. So just in case the white horse and the white armies and uh, the rod of iron and the eyes of fire and all the rest, in case those things did not tell you who we're talking about here, this is what he is truly. He is the king of all kings, and he is the Lord of all lords who qualifies for that. There is only one, and his name is Jesus And my dear friends, the last time that he was here, think of it. The last time that he was here, in weakness, absolute weakness, his glory hidden. The glory of who he is, hidden, stealthy, hidden in a human body, frail. He got tired, he got hungry, he got weak, living in this body. Last time he was here, men defied him. Men, men, human beings blasphemed him. It happens to this day. People use Jesus' name as a profanity. They blasphemed him. They mocked him. That night he was betrayed. Think of it. He knew they were coming. He went to meet them. He allowed them to arrest him. They did not, they arrested him, but he allowed them to arrest him. They beat him because he let them beat him. They spit upon him because he let them spit upon him. They mocked him because he let them mock them. If for one moment he would have thought to himself, I don't want this, he merely would have said the word and they would have been gone, along with the entire Roman army if he wanted. Dead. But he didn't. He let them. He let them mock him. He let them blaspheme him. He let them nail him to a cross. He allowed his body to suffer terribly on that cross, needing comfort, needing assistance. Could have had it if he just would have thought it. But he didn't. He chose not to. He let the very people that he was dying for abuse him. Why? Because he loved them. Think of that. And in a moment, I think, that all heaven and earth shuddered with, he chose to die. The cross did not kill Jesus. He gave up his spirit. He chose to die. And in all of this, my friends, just think of it. This is, this is one of the greatest mysteries that you will ever come upon in your life. That in spite of all of this, these people, they did not know who they were dealing with. They didn't know. They didn't know as they beat him and as they mocked him and as they spit upon him and as they crucified him and as they killed him. They didn't know. The Romans didn't know and the Jews didn't know. They didn't know as they saw his limp body there after three o'clock on that cross that the person who was hanging there is God incarnate. They didn't know. They couldn't have imagined. And I think if this passage tells us anything, it tells us, my dear friends, that there is a time that is coming when this message, this, if you want to call it this secret about who this Person, This unique person, the most special, unique person that has ever lived, Jesus Christ. This secret that to this day, people, the vast majority of people in this world, do not believe it. And they use his name as a swear word. Imagine that. There is coming a day when the secret will be out. And suddenly and dramatically into this creation that is bent on rebellion against him... Heavens will open, and he will step in. I'm back. King of kings. Lord of lords. That will be a moment, don't you think? Absolute power. Absolute authority. The interesting thing here now in the passage is there is no description of any battle. Again, you like Lord of the Rings fans, you're like, oh, I want to read about how he's going to look yourself. The next thing that happens, an angel stands in the sun and says, Vultures gather. It's like there, there, there was no battle. There was no battle. And suddenly, everybody's dead. Everyone is dead. And the enemies, the leaders of his, the, the enemy, are captured and are punished. So those of you that have some sort of mindset like, someday I'm going to battle with Jesus, you're not doing squat. We are merely along for the ride. We're with him. We are with him right there. Now what about this old promise? Remember the old promise? God said to Satan, someday, someday, you're going to get it. Does that happen? Well, just a few verses, Revelation 20, verse 10, here's what it says. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Does that sound like crushing to you? I rather think so. So we see then the fulfillment of this old, old promise that God made to Satan. He will crush you. And indeed, He will. My dear friends, on this All About Him weekend, how easy it is for us in the day-to-day of life and in the day-to-day even of church life to sort of get this mindset somehow about things that don't matter so much making them so very important and missing the things that really matter so much. And that is why on All About Him weekend, we reorient. Okay, let's get the big picture here. What are we doing and why are we doing it? We are doing what we are doing to make much of this rider on the horse. That's why this church exists, is to make much of Christ. He is our Savior and our Lord. And at the end of the story, we find that it is still all about Him. And I think there's just two questions begging to be asked here by way of application. Here's the first one. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Now you look at this story and you can ask yourself whose side you would like to be on. That's not a hard question for me. I hope it's not for you. This Christ is coming back and those that are against him are punished forever and those that are with him by faith believing in their life that he is savior and lord are given eternal life with him forever and when you really get down to it all of the questions of life all of the issues of life this really is the bottom line isn't it is Jesus Christ my Savior and Lord? And by virtue of that, will I receive salvific benefit for all eternity or am I not? And I would say to you, dear friend, in saying this, we're, listen, we're all sinners here. It's not like, we got this thing and you don't. No, we are all sinners, but by God's grace, we all would be in rebellion against God. But... This is the message that Jesus gave to the disciples. And now for 2,000 years we been sharing as much as we can. That there is salvation from the wrath of God to be found in Christ. And what he did on the cross. And anybody, man or woman, child or old, who trusts in Christ will be saved. Romans 10.9 If I believe, if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, I will be saved. It's as simple as that. A child here can understand it. Adult, don't trip up on it. Humble yourself and repent of your sins. Believe. Put your trust in Him. And God will save you. And that testimony is repeated hundreds of times in this room right here. And then you know whose side you're on. You're on the right side of eternity. The second question is, what color are you wearing? I talked earlier about the fact that in this battle, they come to the battle, they're already wearing white already wearing white now how can they wear white before the battle is done here's how as we look at redemptive history the victory has already been won the cross symbolizes the destruction of sin and death and so those who have placed their faith in christ we are in this sense we're already victors we have already won We're already wearing the hats declaring we are on the side of victory. And we could talk a lot about this, but this is the thing. In the day-to-day of life, how easy isn't it to forget whose side we're on and what's going to happen in the future? And again, to let these little things, these discouragements, and I know in this room there are people that are you're discouraged. There is something that has you down. There's something that is not the way that you want it to be in your life. Some whatever it is. I won't even go into what they could be. Whatever it is. And you are here today and you are just, ah. And then you look at a passage like this. And what is it saying to God's people? That we already spiritually are wearing white. We are already on the side of victory. And the application of that truth to the things that in the end probably aren't going to matter at all is a reminder to us of the way that we should live our lives. And to not allow these lesser things, these things that in the end don't matter, to become things that discourage us, overwhelm us, and frustrate us. No, this, the end, here's the end. Here's the end. Christian, if you're a Christian, here's the end. And when you're coming down, riding that white horse, I'm with him, seeing all this thing, are you really going to care about the thing that's got you discouraged right now? I don't think so much better to live in light of that future victory confident and assured that we are on the side of the one who has already won it and again to say it's not about us it's about him we are with him and we will always be with him the words of martin luther his famous hymn And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred grow this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. And Father, we give you glory for this. And Spirit, we give you glory for this. And son, we give you glory for this. You are the rider. You are the king. You are the Lord. You are the hero. You are our savior. We want this day to say to you in our hearts truly that this church is about you and that our lives increasingly, we want to be about you. And I pray if there is any here that do not know you, that you might reveal yourself to them today and that today might be their day of salvation. To glorify yourself through this church as we seek to be light in a community that needs to know the truth. And may they see it and hear it in us. We give you glory today and we thank you. In the name of the rider, of the white horse, the king, we pray. Amen.